You know, there's always a turning point. From presidential races to pennant chases. There's a moment when the momentum shifts, when the tide changes. The turning point in Ezekiel's ministry and in his life was the day his wife died. That was the day, remember, when Ezekiel's warnings all came true. The Babylonians had finally breached the walls and begun their siege of Jerusalem. In a sense, God's spiritual wife, Jerusalem, was as good as dead. And to dramatize that fact to the exiled Jews in Babylon, Ezekiel's wife also died. Imagine, though, the impact that this had on the prophet Ezekiel. He had given his life to communicate God's word. Now he was giving his wife. Ezekiel had to be depressed. He had lost his homeland, his nation, his temple, now his wife. To Ezekiel, it must have seemed like the end of the road, but not so. It was just the turning point. I like the old saying, the end of the road is not, I'm sorry, the end of the road is just a bend in the road if you're willing to make the turn. Guys, when we give up, when we assume that all hope is lost, that's generally a moment when God steps up to the plate and creates beauty from our ashes. Ezekiel had wondered, is there a future? Is there a hope? And the answer was yes. In the wake of this collapse, God makes promises to Ezekiel of Judah's glorious future. The last section of Ezekiel prophesies events that we now know were 2,500 years yet future. Predictions fulfilled in the last 50 years, in fact. Ezekiel chapter 33 through 48 bridged together the ancient past, modern-day Israel, and God's future earthly kingdom. Tonight's chapters are indeed a fascinating section of Scripture. We begin with the recommissioning of Ezekiel. God called Ezekiel, you remember, back in chapter 3 to be his spokesman. Now he repeats that initial calling in chapter 33. Remember, Ezekiel is a watchman on the wall. If he sees danger on the horizon, it's his duty to sound the alarm. If he falls asleep or if he gets distracted and fails to blow his bugle, the people, their blood will be on his hands. On the other hand, if he's faithful to sound the warning, but the people refuse to listen, they may suffer, but he will have delivered his own soul. In other words, the watchman is responsible for sounding the alarm, not how the people respond. Guys, we too are watchmen on the walls. God has placed certain people within the walls of your life, certain individuals within the sphere of your responsibilities. And it's your job, it's my job to speak the truth and to warn them of the dangers of rebelling against God. Those same people may think at times that you're off the wall, but God has us on the wall to be their watchman. You know, at first glance, you might think that the job of a watchman was easy, but not so. Constant vigilance can be exhausting. It is so easy to get distracted. On December the 4th, 1941, Frank Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, set our fears to rest. He told the American people... Whatever happens, the United States Navy is not going to be caught napping. 
Of course, three days later, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Staying vigilant is easier said than done. And that's why God calls Ezekiel a second time. That's also why on occasion he causes us to refocus on our mission. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 33 convey two important truths. Sin's waste and God's wish. Verse 10 says, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? This expression, to pine away, means to waste away or to wither. And that's what sin does. It eats away at your self-respect, your virtue, your health, your family, your dignity, your sanity. It wears on a person. It robs them of their best years. Sin diminishes a person's ability to enjoy life. Live in sin and you too will pine away. God also, though, tells Ezekiel in verse 11, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Notice God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God isn't some sadist who sits in heaven and gets his jollies watching people squirm. Hey, God would much rather forgive and heal than punish. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God brings judgment not because he wants to, but because he has to. Our sin forces his hand. And it's important to keep our relationship with God current. In verses 12 through 20 of this chapter, the Lord talks about the man who's lived a righteous life, but he blows it and he refuses to repent. And Ezekiel says that man will be judged. On the other hand, there's a wicked man who's rebelled his whole life, but he repents. And in the end, God receives him. Understand what matters to God is not what you did yesterday, but where you're at today. Don't describe for me your walk with God 10 years ago. Where do you stand with God today? What is the state of your heart at this very moment? That's what interests God. You see, repentance is an ongoing attitude, not a one-time act. I'll never forget the day my dad and I, we were playing golf. And we were on the ninth tee box at Mystery Valley Golf Course right over, over in DeKalb County. We were about to tee off when we were joined by another golfer. He was about my dad's age, and the two of them kind of hit it off, and they struck up a conversation. It was a conversation, though, I'll never forget. For at one point in the dialogue, the man turns to my dad, and he says, Well, what do your sons do for a living? And my dad answered, They're both pastors. And the man kind of lit up. His face kind of smiled, and he said, Wow. He said, I bet you're proud of those two boys. And I'll never forget my dad's response. He didn't hesitate. He said simply, so far. (laughs) And he sent me a subtle reminder that yesterday is not what counts. It's how I live today that matters. When the invaders breached Jerusalem's walls, two events happened in Babylon. Ezekiel's wife died and the prophet became silent. Evidently, God made 
Ezekiel mute. Both events were symbolic. God's wife was dead and his warnings to them were now over. Judgment had already come and Ezekiel stayed silent for 23 months. But according to verse 21, when news arrives of the city's capture, the Lord reopens Ezekiel's mouth. The prophet goes back online, you might say. The people now need assurances and comfort that all hope is not lost, that God will restore Judah. And Ezekiel becomes the mouthpiece that predicts their glorious future. God gives to Ezekiel a revealing insight at the end of chapter 33. The Lord says in verse 31, So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. This is such an important passage. Remember, Ezekiel performed skits to attract the attention of the people to his message. He loved these these spiritual skits, and the people loved his antics. They came to watch him. Hey, his ministry was good entertainment. People enjoyed Ezekiel's church. He was always keeping them on the edge of their seat. But understand, enjoyment and discipleship are not the same. A person can applaud God's messenger without ever applying the message. This occurs a lot in churches these days. The music is fabulous. The pastor's jokes are hilarious. There's drama and there's video and there's cappuccino. People come to church to be entertained. You see, that's the goal of a concert. And a concert is the illustration that God gives to Ezekiel. He says to the prophet, people will come to hear you as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play on an instrument. You know, you don't attend a concert to become a better person. You go to enjoy and sort of groove to the music, you know. And that's why some folks come to church for entertainment rather than transformation. We need to never forget that our goal is not to entertain people. It's certainly not to be boring either. But our goal is to be compelling and persuasive. Our job is not to get people to applaud unless they apply the Word of God. Not just to delight, but to be a disciple. That's the job of the church. In chapter 34, God brings judgment against the shepherds of Israel or the spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets. The idolatrous Jews had been under their care, and these leaders were at least partly responsible for the nation's decline. He accuses them in verse 2, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You see, they were more interested in feeding themselves in their own prosperity than in the health of the flock. You know, you'll discover that there are really two types of spiritual leaders. First is the pastor who assumes the people exist for him. The members of the church are there to see that he gets paid and pampered and promoted. The second type of leader, though, assumes that he exists for the people. That his job is to feed the flock and strengthen the weak and heal the sick and bind the broken 
and restore the outcast and search for the lost. This is the type of pastor God wants for every church. The people of Israel had been without this kind of nurturing shepherd. And as a result, they had wandered from the Lord and had become susceptible to judgment. The Lord says to them in verse 11, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. In other words, you've lacked this kind of shepherd, so I will be your shepherd, the Lord tells them. He'll gather his scattered sheep. He'll bring them back to Israel. He'll cause them to live in peace. Notice verse 14 tells us, They shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. The only time a sheep ever lied down was when it was at perfect peace, when it was free from fear and friction. And God will be this good shepherd. He will lead them in a place where they can lie down. He'll be the shepherd that they've lacked. This all, of course, was prophetic of Jesus Christ. For you remember in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus announced, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This prophecy also looks forward to the kingdom age when Jesus will return. And in that day, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And verse 17 of the chapter points to that coming judgment. Not only had the flock been ravaged from without, it also had been weakened from within. There were sheep who had been ramming their way around, sort of butting heads with the other sheep, caring only about their own needs, being inconsiderate of the leaner and needier sheep. And God says to them in verse 22, Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Verses 23 through 31 look to the end times and God's future kingdom. Verse 26 says, There shall be showers of blessing poured out on Israel. Wouldn't that make a great name for a song? Showers of blessing. Somebody should write that. The trees will yield their fruit. The land of Israel will contain a garden of renown, we're told. No more will the people go hungry. Israel will live at peace with their surrounding neighbors. And one person will shepherd the nation Israel. He says in verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them my servant David. Now there are two ways here to take this reference to David. First, it could be that in the future kingdom age, David himself will return to the earth and he will rule the world on God's behalf. That's one possible interpretation. The second possible interpretation is that the name David here is being used as a reference to the dynasty that he started. You remember the Caesar or the Pharaoh. These were not personal names, but these were names that had become dynastic names. They were used for the line of kings that followed in the footsteps of the first Caesar. In that case, the latter... The case of the latter, the person then who will shepherd Israel in the kingdom age, is who we might call the ideal David, or the son of David, who, of course, the New Testament refers to as Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the Jewish Targum interprets the word David to mean Messiah, and perhaps Jesus will be this future David spoken of by Ezekiel. Chapter 35 is a judgment against Mount Seir, which was a synonym 
for the land of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. You remember Esau had nurtured an old grudge. He was jealous of the favor that God had showed the Hebrews. And when they were judged, Edom rejoiced. But what goes around comes around. For the Babylonians, after they invade Judah, they will turn their attention eastward and they will defeat the land of Edom and Mount Seir. Which brings us to chapter 36. And the promises that God makes in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 are some of the most amazing promises in all of the Bible. In summation, God will gather the scattered Jews from the nations of the world. He'll replant them in their ancient homeland, and he will reestablish his kingdom Israel. There have been, over the years, so-called Bible scholars who have doubted the fulfillment of these prophecies. How could it be? How could a nation be revived after 2,000 years? In fact, Roman Catholic theologians over the years have taken these promises that God made to Israel and have applied them spiritually to the Catholic Church. In 1588, when Francis Kett began to preach a literal rebirth of the nation Israel, he was burned at the stake for what they considered to be heresy. Even in recent times, skeptics have scoffed at the fulfillment of these prophecies. In the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, a comment is made on the revival of the Hebrew language. The possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. And of course, today we are witnessing both the regathering of the Jews and the reestablishment of their empire as well as they are speaking Hebrew in Israel today. When the famous Count Zinzendorf was brought before the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, he was asked the question, give me one infallible proof that the Bible is the word of God. And Zinzendorf replied, the Jew. Understand, no people group in the history of mankind have been exiled and scattered among foreign nations for 2,000 years, survived countless persecutions, including the Inquisitions, the Crusades, in modern times the Holocaust, and yet managed to retain their identity, their language, and their religion, and then be reunited in their ancient homeland. This is an unprecedented event in the annals of history. Mark Twain once wrote, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, The Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts. All things are mortal but the Jews. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? The secret is that he was beneficiary of God's never-failing promises. It has taken now 2,500 years for Ezekiel's prophecies to be realized. 
But when God makes a promise, he keeps it. No matter how preposterous it may seem to man, no matter how others might scoff, God's promises are always sure and certain, as we'll see in these chapters. The prophecy in chapter 36 is actually to the land of Israel. Its mountains, its hills, its rivers, its valleys. Verse 5 tells us that God is upset at the Gentile nations who have taken the land that God gave to his people Israel and have claimed it for themselves. Notice in verse 5, God calls it my land. It's God's land and he gave it to the Jews. Understand this about today's state of Israel. It's six million citizens live in an area of just 8,000 square miles. That's about the size of New Jersey, about half the size of Switzerland. Whereas, their 150 million Muslim neighbors occupy over 5 million square miles. But for some reason, those Muslim nations just can't find room for their Palestinian brothers. They want Israel to give up their land. It's ridiculous. You see, the Arabs had no interest in the land of Israel until the Jews began to return at the early part of the last century and transform it from a desert into an oasis. Suddenly, they became interested in the land. In verse 8, God says, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Prior to World War I, the Turks ruled over the land of Israel, and the Turkish kings had a tax. They taxed the landowner for the number of trees on his property. (laughs) That was poor policy, because it made it in his best interest to chop down all his trees. And the policy effectively denuded the land of its forests and its foliage. Since returning, though, to the land at the turn of the century, the modern-day Jews have planted over 200 million trees in their land. Their reforestation program has now added 150 acres of Israeli national forests. Modern Israel has become the breadbasket for Europe. They export wheat and grapes and figs and oranges and bananas and cotton and peanuts and sugar beets. Today, this tiny nation has grown a 10 billion a year economy. Israel is an agricultural giant. It's the world's fourth leading citrus grower. It's the third leading exporter of flowers. Verse 35 quotes the nations of the world when they see the restoration of Israel. They say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And that is certainly what the Jews have done to that parcel of land. In verse 10, we're also told that God will multiply men on the mountains of Israel. In 1917, there were 25,000 Jews in Israel. Today, there are 4.5 million and climbing. Today, the leading source of immigration are Russian Jews who are flocking to Israel. God predicted a regathering of the people and a rejuvenation of the land. He sums up his promises to the mountains of Israel in verse 11. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. God will glorify his name by rejuvenating his people. But there is a spiritual dimension to this restoration 
that is still absent. Verse 24 promises, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is the new covenant. We've talked about it before. This was the covenant that God promised Jeremiah. This was the covenant paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. The new covenant, remember, consisted of three promises. And guys, it is vital that you understand these promises because they constitute the remainder of your Bible. The first of these promises is that God will regather the people to the land. The second, He will regenerate their hearts. And the third, He will reestablish His kingdom. Here are the three R's of the new covenant. You need to write them down. Regather, regenerate, and reestablish. And that's the story of the remainder of the Bible. You remember when Rabbi Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. It was the original episode of Nick at Night. This new covenant, these three promises were on Nicodemus's mind. You see, the Jews at that time had already been regathered from Babylon. And he was expecting the reestablishment of God's kingdom to Israel. But Jesus told him that he had forgotten the spiritual element of the new covenant. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. You've been regathered. Now you want to see the reestablishment of the kingdom, but there is a middle promise. You have to be regenerated. A man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You need to be sprinkled and cleansed with the water of God's Spirit. He wants to put in you a new heart, one that is compliant to God, one that is compassionate toward others. He wants to take out that hard heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart. A heart of flesh. This is why we know that the new covenant wasn't fulfilled historically. Yes, God regathered the Jews from Babylon. But they rejected Jesus Christ and therefore forfeited that new covenant or at least entering into it at that time. They remained in their sin and God postponed the reestablishment of his kingdom to Israel. Instead, the Russians, I mean the Russians, the Romans... Russians, that's chapter 38, 39. The Romans came in 70 AD and once more scattered the Jews among the nations where they have remained now for the last 2,000 years. In that interim, what has God done? We know we're beneficiaries of it. God has given us an opportunity, us Gentiles, to embrace Jesus and become a part of the new covenant, today you and I have the opportunity to be born again. But now, in modern times, God has reset the table. Again, Israel has been regathered to the land all over again. The kingdom is about to be established. And at this time, He is going to turn back to the Jews. 
And through the events of the Great Tribulation, particularly the events talked about in chapter 38 and 39, God is going to draw the Jews to Jesus. And once they have been born again and regenerated in their hearts, He will reestablish His kingdom to Israel. In chapter 37, God confirms in a vision what He tells Ezekiel in chapter 36. The prophet is taken to a valley full of decaying bones. It's a huge graveyard. And these bones have been there for a long time. Verse 2 says they are very dry. That means they've been sitting there a while. In verse 3, the Lord asks Ezekiel a question. Son of man, can these bones live? (laughs) And so I answered, Ezekiel says, Oh Lord God, you know. In other words, he's not being very optimistic, is he? Ezekiel, though, is told to prophesy over these bones. And to his amazement, the skeletons begin to rattle. And they begin to reassemble bone to bone. And in verse 8, Ezekiel says, As I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, and there was no breath, but there was no breath in them. When I read about this vision, I think of that old song we used to learn as kids, you know, the thigh bone connected to the knee bone. And the knee bone connected to the ankle bone. And apparently that's how it happened. These bones started rattling and reassembling bone to bone. And, and the graveyard turned into skeletons that were then clothed with sinews and, and tendons and ligaments and muscles and flesh. But there was no breath. It was a miracle. With one command from God, this graveyard of skeletons was transformed into actual corpses, but their bodies were still dead and lifeless. On May the 15th, 1948, in the city of Tel Aviv, Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, declared to the world the reestablishment of the ancient nation of Israel. It was the fulfillment of this first portion of Ezekiel chapter 37. After nearly 2,000 years, I told you those bones were very, very dry. Those bones were reassembled into a recognizable people and a recognizable nation. But life has yet to be breathed into those bones. Today, Israel is a secular state. The Israeli people have yet to receive the spiritual regeneration promised in the new covenant. This requires a distinct and separate act. And that's why in verse 9, God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath or the spirit to enter and animate these corpses. In verse 10, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. You see, God predicted the restoration of Israel that it would take place in two phases. First, a secular, lifeless state would form. A a secular state without the life of the Spirit. After which, though, spiritual life would be breathed into these people. And on God's timetable, right now we are currently between these two phases of the prophecy. The end of chapter 37 focuses on the third ingredient of the new covenant, the reestablishment of God's kingdom. 
Ezekiel is told to perform another stunt. He's to take two sticks. Right on one of the sticks, Judah. On the other, Israel. Then combine them into a single stick. And it was a vivid way to reinforce a sticky point. The divided kingdoms of north and south of Israel and Judah would be reunited. God's future kingdom will be one empire consisting of all 12 tribes under a single king. Chapter 37 closes with verse 27, with God dwelling in his temple in the midst of Israel, saying of the Jews, I will be their God and they shall be my people, which raises the critical question. The Jews today are no closer to accepting Jesus as their Messiah as they were the first time he came. So, they're regathered to the land. What is going to happen? What event is necessary to cause them to be open to God's will and His Spirit? To cause the new life of God's breath to fill their dead carcasses? What is, going, what is it going to take? And the answer is found in chapters 38 and 39. For God will deliver them in such an incredible way that they will finally repent and open up to his plan for their salvation. In chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel takes the role of a war correspondent. He's sent to cover a battle that, according to verse 8, occurs in the latter years or in the end times. Between the regathering of the Jews in chapters 36 and 37 and the reestablishment of the kingdom that's going to be discussed in chapters 40 through 48, in between, in chapters 38 and 39, a clash occurs on the mountains of Israel. A coalition of invading armies are confronted and defeated by God himself, and it is so dramatic that it attracts the attentions of the Jews. It opens up their heart to receive Jesus as their Messiah. The invaders are named in verse 2. And among their leaders are Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Genesis chapter 10 and other ancient sources identify these names with the people who live north of the Caucasus Mountains. The Caucasus Mountains are the natural boundary between Russia and the Middle East. Rosh is probably the root word for Russia. And Meshach is a word tied to the word Moscow. Any doubt that Russia is the leading perpetrator in this invasion is cleared up in verse 15, where we're told, then you will come from your place out of the far north. And if you take a globe and find the city of Jerusalem, then follow that same longitudinal line northward, it will almost dissect with the city of Moscow. Russia is directly north of Israel. In verse 4, God says, that this northern coalition of nations, he says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army. In other words, God will set a hook. An incentive that will overcome Russia's initial reluctance will turn her attitude around and will cause Russia to invade the land of his people. For years, Russia has had incentives. She has coveted Israel's fertile farmland and strategic position and warm weather ports. But the real hook 
may be the growing Muslim population in its southern provinces. Russia's Muslim ties make it extremely pro-Iranian and pro-Iraqi. And I believe her alliance with the Muslim world will provoke her to attack Israel. Verse 5 lists the other nations who will join this Russian invasion. Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Ethiopia, which in 1984 became the first Marxist state on the African continent. Libya, and you know about Daffy Gaddafi. He's an obvious anti-Semite. Gomer is a name tied to the Germanic people who Hitler proved can be swayed by anti-Semiticism. And Togomar, or the Armenians who live in northern Turkey. When Israel wrote this chapter, there was no apparent connection between these diverse peoples. Today, though, they all fall fall into the anti-Israeli, pro-Islamic camp. According to verse 11, this northern coalition will attack at a time of apparent peace. We're told they'll come down on unwalled villages. And remember, Ezekiel had never seen an unwalled village. We see them all the time. That's all that exists today. He had never seen one. All the ancient cities were protected by walls. And either this is Ezekiel's way of describing a modern city, or it's a way of describing a city at peace, or perhaps even both. Verse 12 is also interesting. Jerusalem is said to dwell in the midst of the land. The Revised Standard Version translated the center of the earth. The literal Hebrew translation is the earth's navel. In other words, Jerusalem is the world's belly button. And you know, that's true not only geographically, but also politically. Isn't it amazing how Israel's always front page news? What's happening in Jerusalem is almost more important than what's happening in Atlanta. At least that's what you would gather from the paper. The world is preoccupied with Jerusalem. It is where the action is. Notice four more nations mentioned in verse 13. Sheba and Dedan, or Saudi Arabia, and Tarshish and the young lions, which could refer to Great Britain and the United States. These nations rebuke Russia's naked aggression, but they don't lift a finger to stop them. They take a seat on the sidelines, leaving Israel on her own. Only God is left to defend his people Israel. But this he does. In verse 19, the Russian invasion is thwarted, we're told, by a great earthquake. Verse 20 tells us that the quake rocks the land of Israel, but its shock waves are felt all around the world. Verse 22 that says that the quake comes with floods and hailstones, even fire and brimstone. Chapter 39, verse 6 also mentions a judgment by fire. It says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This phrase, the coastlands, is a Hebrew expression for distant lands. And it is possible that this indicates some catastrophe in the more distant lands. Perhaps America's alliance with Israel could trigger some sort of Muslim retaliation. We don't know. Verse 9 mentions bows and arrows, but those are King James interpretations. The Hebrew words literally mean launchers. 
and piercing objects. They could just as easily speak of scud missile launchers, some other kind of modern-day missile system. Notice in verses 9 and 10, after the invasion, the weapons burned for seven years. A period of seven years is the length of the Great Tribulation, and from this some speculate that this invasion of Israel will occur at the beginning of the Great Tribulational period. The earthquake sins that God sends against this northern army will wipe them out. And according to verse 12, the Israelis will spend seven months burying the bodies. But what's interesting is to note how these burials take place. Verse 14 says that a special detachment is sent throughout the land to spot the corpses. But they don't touch the bodies themselves. They flag them. And then a special burial team comes behind them and disposes of the bodies. Isn't that an interesting description? Could it be that these bodies have been contaminated by some kind of radioactive fallout? Some commentators believe that the earthquake that wipes out the northern invaders is actually the result of the detonation of a nuclear bomb. And note the effect all this has on Israel. Notice the effect of its deliverance, verse 22. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. It impacts them. It turns their hearts to God. The defeat of Gog and Magog will open the eyes of the nation Israel to their Messiah. And this is why I believe that there has to be more involved here than just a nuclear explosion. If it were just a nuclear bomb that delivered Israel, how would it convince them that God is fighting for them? Perhaps a nuclear explosion is part of the upheaval, but I believe a direct act of Almighty God is what saves Israel from these invading armies. Chapters 40 through 48 are glorious visions that take us even further into the future. Remember the three R's of the New Covenant. Chapters 36 and 37 describe the regathering of the nation. Chapters 38 and 39 forecast the event that stirs in their hearts a regeneration. Now chapters 40 through 48 discusses the reestablishment of the kingdom of God on planet Earth. Remember, in his model prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The ultimate answer to that prayer won't occur until Jesus returns to earth and literally establishes his kingdom. Revelation 20 tells us that Jesus will return and he'll reign over the earth for a thousand years We call that future period the millennium or the kingdom age. And that's the subject now of for the rest of the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 40 through 43 describe a new temple. Chapters 44 through 46, a new worship. And chapters 47 and 48, new boundaries. Keep in mind now that Ezekiel is basically a lifeguard without a pool. He's a carpenter without a hammer, for he is a priest without a temple. He lives in Babylon, 600 miles from the temple in Jerusalem. 
In fact, the only time he had visited the temple was in a vision where God had brought him to the temple back in chapters 8 through 10. And it was a depressing vision indeed. You remember he saw all of the hideous idols that had filled the temple. Here Ezekiel the priest is rewarded for being a faithful prophet with a glimpse of a future temple. Understand, not counting the spiritual temple, the New Testament temple of the church, there are four actual, literal, physical temples mentioned in Scripture. First was Solomon's temple, built by Solomon. Second was the post-exile temple, rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the Jews had returned to, from Babylon. Third is the temple spoken of in the Great Tribulation that will be defiled by the Antichrist. And fourth is this millennium temple that Ezekiel sees in these visions. According to verse 3, Ezekiel is given a tour of the temple by a man with a bronze appearance. In other words, he's gotten a good tan. The man has a tape in one hand. He has a measuring stick in the other hand. His rod is six Babylonian cubits long, or about ten and a half feet. The remainder of chapters 40 through 42 are blueprints. The structure and the layout of the temple is described and measured in incredible detail. The temple has a holy place about the size of Solomon's temple, then an inner court and an outer court that made it much larger actually 42 times larger than Solomon's temple. Ezekiel's temple also was surrounded by three floors of chambers that were used by the priests. And to me, chapter 42, verse 11, sort of describes, it's describing the chambers for the priests, but it it reveals a significant insight that sort of sums up this whole section. We're told there was a walk in front of them also, And their appearance was like the chambers which were toward the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to plan. I like that. I think that's the point of a lot of this, that what God does, He does according to plan. I think these chapters teach us that when God works in our lives, it isn't random. God doesn't work in a scatterbrained fashion. He doesn't use the shotgun approach. No, there is a plan. There is a purpose behind every single one of God's actions. He always works according to plan. In chapter 10, Ezekiel had witnessed God's departure from the temple. He saw the Shekinah glory of God depart slowly and reluctantly from the defiled temple. But here, he sees God's glory return. And from the east, the very same direction that it left, Ezekiel sees the glory of God enter through the temple, through the east gate. And verse 2 says that God's voice was like the sound of many waters. This is how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. Like a waterfall, His voice was so strong and full. In chapter 10, I mentioned how that I believe that Jesus was the Shekinah glory that filled Solomon's temple. And in the millennium, I believe that he'll return again to the temple and he'll rule the world from his throne in Jerusalem. There is, though, one problematic aspect associated with placing Ezekiel's temple in the millennial kingdom. 
And it is the reason that there are good commentators who resist that notion that this is not some millennial temple. And here's why they say that. At the end of chapter 43, and really throughout some of these chapters, we find animal sacrifices offered on this temple's altar. And if Jesus put an end to the sacrifices, as is taught us in the book of Hebrews, why are they being revived in a future temple? And to me, that is a very valid, that's an excellent question. I personally believe that the sacrifices are revived in this millennial temple not as atonement for sin, but as a memorial to the work of Jesus Christ. You see, each of the Old Testament sacrifices spoke in advance of Christ's sacrifice for us. And I believe the millennial sacrifices have the same effect, but in arrears. They look back and they help illustrate the work that Jesus did to save us just as communion and baptism serve today as reminders of the Lord's work for us, these sacrifices in the millennium will serve that same purpose in the kingdom age. Temple sacrifices were carried out for about 1,000 years, from the dedication of Solomon's temple to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was about 1,000 years. For those thousand years, the Jews saw the sacrifices, but never grasped their significance. They never realized that they were speaking to them of Jesus. Perhaps God will give them another thousand years to make up for lost time and to finally get the point. In Ezekiel's vision here, he sees the glory of God return to the temple through the east gate. But now he comes back down to earth. And in chapter 44, verse 1, he notices that the east gate is shut, as it is to this very day. It's been blocked up by the Muslims. Now, if you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount, you have probably seen this blocked up eastern gate. It is really a distinguishing landmark. The Jews also call it the Golden Gate. The gate dates back to the 7th century A.D. It was built on top of the gate through which Jesus rode his donkey when he made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. But in 810 A.D., a Muslim ruler read where the Messiah would re-enter the city through this gate, and he had it blocked up with stone. It was reopened briefly during the Crusades, but it was closed again by another Muslim ruler, a Turkish governor in 1543, who too feared the return of Jesus Christ. There have been several efforts to reopen the gate, but they all have failed. And so it's interesting in verse 2, when Ezekiel says, The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. The Shekinah glory departed through this east gate. Jesus rode his donkey through the same gate, and thus it was shut in Messiah's honor. But verse 3 tells us, But as for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. In other words, the gate will remain shut 
until Messiah the Prince returns and uses this east gate as his own personal entrance in and out of the temple. They do have reason to fear because Jesus is going to come back and those few stones that have shut up the gate are not going to stop him. He is going to re-enter the temple through the eastern gate. Notice, though, I am assuming that the prince in these chapters is the Messiah. He's mentioned often. And I'm making that assumption, but I do want you to know that it is an assumption. Jesus is often in the Old Testament called the prince. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, he is the prince of peace. In Daniel 9, verse 25, he is Messiah the prince. In Daniel 8, verse 25, he's called the prince of princes. And it all reinforces the point. Jesus is this priest. Even the rabbis interpreted the prince to be the Messiah. But again, there are some problems with this interpretation. First, in chapter 45, verse 22, the prince offers a sin offering. And if the prince is Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, what is he doing offering a sin offering? Is it just symbolic? Second problem is in chapter 46, verse 16, the prince has sons. Jesus had no natural born sons. Could it be a reference to his spiritual sons of which he has many? We don't know. And the third problem is in chapter 46, verse 2. It shows the prince worshiping at the temple. Why would Jesus be worshiping when he is the one who should be worshiped? <laughs> Again, more problems. Who is this millennial prince? Is it King Jesus? Or is it King David, who we already discussed? I believe it's Jesus, but I'm not sure. And so you have fun figuring it out for yourself. Chapters 44 through 46 discuss position and decorum in the millennial temple. Notice what God says to the priests in chapter 44, verses 17 and 18. Whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments, no wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. <laughs> God wanted the priests ministering in garments that breathed. Nothing heavy like wool that would cause them to perspire. And the reason? God wanted us all to know that his work is no sweat. <laughs> you remember what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 11 my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. When ministry becomes a burden, it's because you're trying to do it in your own efforts. You're in the flesh. You're not walking in the spirit. When it comes to God's work, don't sweat it. Just trust the Lord to do His work in and through you.
He will. Chapters 45 describes a holy district set aside for the priests, as well as a portion of the land allocated for the prince. Chapter 47 begins with a description of the millennial topography of Jerusalem. In verse 1, Ezekiel sees a spring bubbling up from under the threshold of the temple. He follows it southward. And the farther he goes, the deeper the river becomes. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. The river flows from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea, and it brings healing to its waters. Amazingly, the Dead Sea becomes a fisherman's paradise. Trees grow along the banks of this river that have healing in their leaves. In the millennium, rather than take medicine, all you have to do is go for the salad bar. And according to Joel chapter 3 verse 18 and Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8, this river that flows from the temple flows in two directions. It flows south and it flows west. It ends up connecting the Dead Sea with the Mediterranean Ocean. It's hard to imagine now, but one day Jerusalem will become a port city that will connect those two bodies of water. The remainder of chapter 47 describes the future boundaries of Israel. And in in the first 29 verses of chapter 48, the land is reallocated to the 12 tribes of Israel. Ezekiel ends his book with a picture of the future city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be nearly three times the current size of the old city. It will have three gates on each of its four sides, each named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the city will be given a new name. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Shammah. Or it's translated here, the Lord is there. What a wonderful name for the city. The Lord is there. And this is a great place for us to end our study of the book of Ezekiel. Jesus is the Lord who is always there for you and me. Remember his promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophecies that we can look back on and study and see their fulfillment even in our very own day. How exciting to know that you are working in the world today, that you are bringing everything according to plan And Lord, we are excited about the times in which we live. Exciting days. The last days. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look for your soon return. And Lord, we want to be ready when we meet you. Help us to purify our hearts. Help us to lean on you and your spirit to purify us. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.